Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today on the show, I'm joined with Beth Felson, who is an ASD transition coach. She helps those of us who are on the spectrum transition into adulthood, find work, and a transition into school, both local and out of state. So sit back, relax, and grab your favorite beverage, and I'll see you on the other side. See you there. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today, I'm joined with Beth Felsen. Welcome to the show, Beth. Thanks, Reed. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Let's start off with how did you get involved with coaching for, for those who are on the spectrum? So um, like many people who are in this field or work with uh fields related to autism, it all started with a family member. Um, for me, it was my, it is my daughter who is she just had her 26th birthday. When she was about two and a half, we started to notice that some things were a little different about her, but we couldn't figure out what was going on. And part of what was really throwing us was she was highly verbal. She mm. was reading. She was reading very, very early. She was um, uh, doing all these things. But at the same time, she when other kids moved from parallel play to more interactive play, she couldn't really make that that adjustment when other kids, uh, noisy situations, you know, were very overwhelming to her. We had this play group of a um, couple of families with kids all about the same age. And when they would come to our house, she couldn't even come downstairs. Uh, it, so we knew that there were some, there was something going on, but we really did not have any idea what it was or, you know, what, how it might impact her in the future. We got very, very lucky um, that we knew some people who worked in tangential fields to psychoeducational, who were familiar with psychoeducational evaluations and things like that. And they suggested that we go through that process. And that's how we got the diagnosis of what was then called Asperger's. So this was in about 2000 when we finally got a formal diagnosis. And um, she did really, really well with the speech and language therapy for pragmatic language. She had some motor coordination issues. She did occupational therapy that worked really well. We had her, um, you know, we developed an IEP plan for her. Things were going really well. She was very bright. She um, was offered her spot in our um, advanced academic programs and things were going well. But what we didn't realize was that she was still really struggling socially. Mm. And those that didn't really become fully apparent until she went to college. Mm. And at that point, we were looking for resources for her and really were coming up empty. Uh, so that was the genesis of how I decided that this would be a field that I could, I thought, really make a difference in, fill a hole, and that I was good at. I mean, I had been coaching her. <laughs> her whole life and had started to become the person that other people would call when they knew someone who had uh, a family member, a child um, who was diagnosed with autism. And so I was doing a lot of that stuff kind of already. So that was the genesis to it. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How is she doing today? 
She's doing really well. Um, we went through some rough spots. Um, so the, 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 the not finding um, supports for her mm-hmm. sort of started early in her college career. But when she got toward the end of her college career, that's when we started, she started having significant issues with uh, depression and anxiety and all that kind of stuff. You're shaking your head because I, I, I'm sure you're familiar. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, But she, so she, I'll fast forward to the end. She's in her second year of a PhD program studying neuroscience um, at George Washington university. And she is planning to become a researcher who studies brain development and um, the way brains develop differently um, with autistic individuals. So that's the, that's the, that's the, the happy end <laughs> to the very long story. <laughs> Kudos to her. I mean, but like you said, I mean, I understand what you went through. I mean, I went away to school in Europe for my master's. And I knew before I even went away, the most important thing for me was finding, making sure I went to a school that had help. Right. And the first thing I did is when I went through an organization called um, Across the Pond that helped me choose the schools mm-hmm. with my with my interest. And then once I had those schools, I'd contact them and say, hey, do you have a, a sp- apartment for disability? Mm-hmm. And if they... And what kind of help do you provide? Well, I came across one of the schools, which was the one I went to, which was the University of Kent in Canterbury, England, where they had a really good advisor to the point where a month before I was to fly out, he would call me once a week. And just to wow. check in with me, see if there's anything I need help on. And then we would continue that chat once, mm-hmm. once a week. And so... But the minute I graduated, I understand what you went through with depression. I was severely depressed. I mean, because my routine changed. Right. I didn't know I was depressed. And and then it's just like, what do I do now? No one's hiring. No one's doing this. I can't. But kudos to your daughter for wanting to go for her PhD. I could never do that. She is the most persistent and um brave Mm -hmm. person i know she has at every turn when she's hit an obstacle you know it hasn't always gone smoothly but she's gotten her way through it um you know not in a vacuum obviously and we're you know the the support that that Mm -hmm. she gets from her family and you know from good people that she's found to surround herself with has just been fantastic um, and it's so interesting because, you know, I told you she had this diagnosis when she was four, when she graduated from college, she asked to have to do a new psychoeducational evaluation because she felt that there were um, motor deficits that we didn't really focus on when she was little, but that she was finding when she was working in neuroscience labs Um, you know, the fine motor coordination that she needed just wasn't there. And that was a huge source of anxiety for her. So she went through a whole nother um, psychoeducational evaluation and did another round of um, occupational therapy and all that kind of stuff. So she's, um, yeah, she's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, kudos to her. I could never do it because I I mean, I know going for a PhD is like one of the hardest things to do because one, you got to find living on your own Two, the budgeting is expensive Mm -hmm. and it's a lot of years. It is. I tried it and I was not successful. So not in the sciences, but yeah. Um, I mean, I tried it with my master's and my dissertation wasn't enough. So mm -hmm. And then at that point, I said, no, but I do want to plan and go back and get my a second master's degree in autism studies. 
I have a, um, one of the things that I did when I, once I realized that I wanted to become a coach, I figured, you know, just being the mom of, uh, you know, 20 something on the spectrum was not enough. (laughs) So I started collecting trainings and things like that. And one of the things that I did was a graduate certificate in autism studies um, Mm. through George Mason University, which is local to me. Um, So yeah, it's really, really interesting to learn about autism from someone else's perspective, Mm -hmm. as opposed to your own personal perspective. It was very eye-opening. All right. So now let's get into more of your work. I mean, what's a typical day like for you? Typical day for me. So I work from home. Um, I work 100% on Zoom. And um, typically I start my day with uh, some (laughs) self-care. I walk every day. I read the newspaper every day. Um, And then my workday starts. Usually I see um, three or four clients a day for hour long sessions. I am checking in with other clients uh, that the accountability piece of coaching, Mm -hmm. I am making professional connections. I belong to a few networking organizations, um, one local, one, one national. And tomorrow, like tomorrow morning, I have a, um, a zoom function with one of those groups um and then also doing one-on-one connecting with other professionals one of my goals with my coaching is if i don't feel that you are a good fit for my coaching practice i want to give you as many resources you know connections to as many Mm -hmm. resources as i can um and support you in any way that i can so those networking connections and professional um, calls are really, really important to me. I should mm-hmm. say that I, I focus on young adults. Young so adult. my, okay. my practice focuses on sort of late high school through twenties, um, through the twenties. And my specific interest is uh, with young adults who are interested in going to college because what I found from my own daughter and all the research that I've done um, and the conversations that I've had with people at college on college campuses and um, therapists and, and people who work with young adults who tried college and were not successful is that there's a whole skill set that it becomes really important when you're at the college level, especially if you want to go away to college, that people aren't practicing and aware of when they're in high school. So helping students to bridge that transition to college, stay, uh, thrive in college and and be able to stay in college and be able to look then look forward to careers in their chosen fields is mm-hmm. um, that's my, that's my special interest right. uh, in terms of the coaching community. Right. What do you find is the most hardest thing to deal with when you're dealing with those who are on the spectrum? What's the hardest thing to deal with? I, I don't think there's really one hard thing. I come up across, I come across a couple of things. One is that um, most of the time, the first connection I have with a family is through a parent. Mm-hmm. And what I find more often than I uh, would like is parents who tell me that their young adult doesn't know about their autism diagnosis right. or knows about it, but isn't um, hasn't sort of accepted that as part of who they are. That's really difficult. I mean, I, I, cannot work with someone who doesn't understand that they've got autism as, as one of their um, formative um, characteristics, for lack of a better word. So that's something. Um, another thing that it 
can be difficult with coaching is, and coaching autistic young adults is the ability to, you know, that um, theory of mind kind of mm-hmm. thing where, you know, trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes or understand how someone else is, is feeling, that can be a challenge as well. Um, but for the most part, I, the clients I work with, I, they're funny. They have great senses of humor. Um, and um, I appreciate uh, what they bring to the table. But so in terms of challenges, those would be the two, I think. The lack of awareness about their diagnosis and the theory of mind challenge. That's got to be hard dealing with those who just don't deny the fact that they have it. I mean, how do you deal with a kid who says, I don't have it. I'm normal as everyone else. Well, those are clients I really can't, I can't, they can't become clients really mm-hmm. until they understand the diagnosis. Now, sometimes it's a late in life diagnosis, like, you know, like in your case, um, I'm working with uh, a couple of clients right now who um, have very recent diagnoses and um the families are still sort of grappling with how to explain this to a young adult. Part of the problem, I think, is, and this was a problem that my husband and I had when our daughter was diagnosed. When when our daughter was diagnosed, autism to us was, you know, nonverbal, um, significant behavior issues, mm. or or Rain Man. <laughs> you know, those were the only autistic people that we were aware of. And so to understand that you can have an autism diagnosis and be, you know, highly intelligent and have, um, you know, have some great people skills and, you know, all that kind of stuff was just very, a very weird place to be. Um, And I think a lot of parents had the same, you know, have had the same experiences with autism that, that I had. If you don't know someone who's autistic and can say, here's an example of someone who doesn't fit that stereotype. Um, when you hear that your child has been diagnosed, you know, that can be a very scary thing mm-hmm. and um, a, an emotional thing. And you can be afraid to tell people. So I can kind of understand why some people have a hard time sharing it with their children because they're having a hard time with it themselves. Now, what is the percentage you deal with that want to go away to want to stay home for college? So um, it's kind of hard to say because some of my clients come to me when they're already in college and they're Mm -hmm. away and they're trying to stay there. Some mm. of my clients come to me when they've um, they're trying to decide: should I take a gap year? Should I stay? Should I do community college for a year or two? Um, you know, what should we do? So I would say most of the the clients that I deal with, let's say maybe eighty percent of the clients who are interested in college want to go away eventually, but. And some of them, thankfully, recognize that they need to be better prepared in order for that to ha- to be successful for them. And then I do work with a, a you know, the other part of my practice is um, clients who have not had a successful college experience, mm. and so they, you know, they've had a, a semester or a year, and then they just can't do it anymore. Um, and they're home and they're trying to figure out what's next for me. Can I go back to school? Do I want to go back to school? If not, what is life going to look like? Now, how do you, when you have a, a client who wants to go to school, say mm-hmm. out of state, how do you prep them for like, okay, these are the things you're going to have to worry about. These are the people you're going to have to contact. These are, this is the way you're going to be living. You're going to be on your own. How do you prep them to get ready for all this stuff that's going to hit them face head on? Right, exactly. So we talk about um, college readiness 
And um, I usually break college readiness down into four categories, executive function, life skills, Mm -hmm. social communication. And I'm totally drawing a blank on what the other one is. (laughs) 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 That's really bizarre. Um, But we talk about, um, you know, all of, oh, self-advocacy. That's the, that's the fourth one. Um, Probably the most important, actually. I can't believe I forgot it. Um, So what I do is I start by educating them and their families, because some of this is uh, parents needing an education as well. And we talk about what the differences are between high school and college, the difference between the the special education laws that are that are in place for K through 12 education, which is the um, IDEA versus the ADA, which is what you're going to encounter in college and how the, the types of supports um, and the, 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 the way of thinking about supports is different. And um, then from there, we jump to sort of assessing there and and why the different college readiness skills are important. You know, why, uh, you know, you're going to be 18 when you're in college, your, your parents, you know, with the privacy act and all that kind of stuff, your parents aren't going to be able to call up the registrar and find out what courses you registered for, or, you know, anything like that. So, you know, that self-advocacy piece becomes really important. Self and your parents are not going to be able to call the school and say, my, son or daughter is um, not doing well in this particular class, what types of uh, supports are available to them? You need to say, I need help. And how can I get the help? So we start with some education. Uh, Then I sort of, I don't do college consulting in terms of, you know, here's a list of schools that might be good for you. But we talk a lot about characteristics of schools. You know, we have a discussion about um, who's your support system going to be when you're away from home and would you feel comfortable being all the way across the country or would you be better off maybe an hour or two away from home in case something, you know, you, you need you need some extra support. We talk about the disability services office and why it's a really good idea to make sure that the schools that you're looking at have robust services and why it's a really good idea to connect and apply mm-hmm. for um, and hopefully receive accommodations at the school that you ultimately choose. We talk about mental health and um, you know how are you going to receive mental health support when you're at school. We talk about the importance of social connections and that's where I get a lot of pushback from, from people. But I explain to them that, you know, when you're in college, you're only in class a couple of hours a day. And mm-hmm. then you have all of this time. So, you know, you need to figure out the executive function piece, right? You need to figure out how, when, and and where you're going to get your classwork done and all that kind of stuff. But you also, you know, for your mental health and for your sense of belonging, uh, you need to make some social connections. So we talk about that a lot. I actually have my clients pull up um, the page on the college and university website where it lists all the clubs. And we talk about finding some clubs that match with your interests. And we talk about, you know, sources of friends and, you know, how to deepen a friendship and, and really why that's important, um, you know, for your, to be able to thrive. You don't want to just survive and tread water through college. You want to mm-hmm. really feel like you had a, a, a meaningful experience. I mean, I know that I know all those all too well because my mother would say to me, now you're going away. You got to advocate for yourself. You got to tell these people, listen, you have autism. You need to tell your professors, listen, I need extra time. Mm-hmm. And then the big thing my mom always pushed at me is, listen, do not stay in your room. Right. Go to your class and do things. You're in Europe. Explore, right. enjoy the university. 
And that's what I did. I mean, I was hardly in my room as much as I was. And I literally, I, the first thing I did was we had a thing called the Friars Week. Mm-hmm. It's basically when all the societies would come out and they would recruit people or people would sign up to the society they belong to. I signed up to three societies my first term there. And I dropped out of two of them and stuck with the, the one I enjoyed the most. Mm-hmm. And that's where my main group of friends was. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. What I find with my clients is that there's so much anxiety mm-hmm. around being being out there and doing those things that it can be debilitating um, and they won't necessarily make the effort. So, you know, with my college students who I've coached through the summer, you know, leading up to their arrival on campus, you know, one of the first things I ask them is when's the activities fair? You know, when, when, um, you know, are are you going to be able to go? How can you make that work? Um, And then I always check in with them about, about the social things, because it it can be, especially for, you know, um, what I have found is that a lot of the young adults who are, who know that they are going to college, they know they're going to college because they've had academic success, but those same students tend to have buried themselves in their coursework and used it as an excuse to not socialize. And um, those are the ones who had the hardest time with that transition in terms of making friends and, and that kind of stuff. I knew when I started, I was having issues. I mean, my that's why my disability advisor came in. He stepped in. He's like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set you up with a psychotherapist for six weeks. Mm-hmm. He'll help you get through and deal with your emotions and help you re, re, um, regulate and get to your mindset and everything. Mm-hmm. And he set me up with a well-being advisor who would I would check in once a week as well. And their job was to make sure I ate well, make sure I understood my homework. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to talk about anything, that was their job. And I had one really good well-being advisor who literally was the sweetest man around. I mean, his name, his name is Stone Fitzgerald. He'd give me a big hug when I first see him. And we'd go in and we'd talk and he'd take me on a walk. He took me on this walk to an apple orchard. We talked and and then after my first time of failing my exams, he set me up with another well-being advisor who set me up with, we talked and she's like, okay, I'm going to set you up with a study program. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, because of me being autistic, I stuck to it to the nail and I didn't make room for improvisation. And I literally had a friend tell me one day, he's like, you look like shit. <laughs> he's like, why? I'm like, well, because I've been doing nothing but studying and eating and sleeping. And that's right. it. He's like, well, you need time for fun. Right. Time to let your mind be at ease. Absolutely. It's so important. I, I talk with my clients about um, neuro health and, you know, neuro mental health. You know, it's all, it, 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 there's so many components. You've got to get reasonable sleep. That's you've a big got one. to you've got to eat right. You've got to make sure you're staying hydrated. You've got to have outlets for, um, uh, you know, being with other people. And you also need to make sure that you're keeping time for, you know, to recharge your social battery. Um, and all of those things are just as important as the academics, because if you're not doing all those other things, guess what? Your academics are going to start going down the tubes because you're, <laughs> you're just starting to feel like poop. Right. Exactly. And you're, you're not going to have the energy to focus in your class. And right. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure you tell this to a lot of your clients, but I know for me, every course I took, I made sure to sit up front because I knew if I sat in the back, I would wind up falling asleep. Mm-hmm. Or I would be not be able to focus on the board and what he's saying because of all the distractions. This way, I'm up front. 
I see the teacher going back and forth, writing on the board. My mind is focusing on him and not everything else. Mm -hmm. What I talk to my clients about is figuring out what they need in that environment. For some of them, it's sitting up front. For some of them, um, as an accommodation, they get a note taker. They have someone mm -hmm. who takes notes who's, who can share their notes with them because they know that they can't take notes and pay attention at the same time. So we work a lot on um, figuring out what you need and then learning how to actually ask for it. I mean, I knew... Um... I knew to tell my professors I was on the spectrum that I have a disability advisor and this is everything I knew. I knew myself what I had to do. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's amazing. That's great. I, I, but I also knew I was going to hit, but heads with a professor or a, um, a lecturer because some of them are like, I can't help you because if I help you, I got to help others. I literally had to sit there and pound it into him saying it's part of what's in my disability thing that you have to help me out. Right. Absolutely. And that's where that self-advocacy, you know, feeling comfortable doing that has to be um, something that you're able to do before you put your, you get yourself in that kind of situation. Yeah. I mean, my biggest fear was exam taken because when you have ADHD and you're in a room, mm -hmm. Even in a timed room, a no-timed room, you still have everyone else who's like you in that room who's who's got some kind of disability taking tests, but you still got all the distractions around you of them right. having them typing and everything. And that's when my biggest issue is when I'm doing that is I get distracted and then my thing, my mind is, okay, they're finished and I'm still working. Right. Do I need to hurry up? My mind, or my mind should say, no, you don't need to hurry. Everyone's taking a different test. Right. And I panic. And yeah. that's when I kind of like lose it. Yeah. And that, that's, you know, that happens, you know, for various reasons. But what you just described happens a lot with the clients that I work with. One of the things we talk about is stress management techniques. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we talk a lot about things you can do when no one else will know that you're doing it. So, you know, if you're in class and you're feeling anxious because you don't understand what the professor is saying, or if you're taking a test with other people who have extended time and they're all getting up and you're still there, you know, breathing techniques and, you know, things to kind of center and ground yourself in the space that you're in to, to help you get through it. So we talk about immediate strategies and then longer term strategies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, talking to a friend or commiserating with someone about a test that was really you know, difficult. And then the the very long-term stuff is having the support of a therapist or a coach. Now, do your clients keep in touch with you while they're still in school? Do you have yeah. like an ongoing? Yeah. So I have um, a couple of clients that I'm working with, that I worked with. Um, you know, I always try and make sure that we have at least a few sessions when they first get to school. And then I uh, we do sort of sort of like a maintenance plan, you know, where it's it's really more of an extended check-in. So, you know, I've got a couple of clients now where um, we've done our our big the big part of our work, and now you know we meet for about a half an hour a week, and it's really just, you know, how are things going? How are you eating? <laughs> um, you know, what do you have coming up? Uh, you have any big tests coming up? How's your stress level? You know, we do some. Um, some of the executive function stuff of, um, you know, planning things out. So one of the things that I always recommend to my college students is a personal planning meeting. So to pick a time during the week that makes sense based on the flow of your courses and your coursework and look ahead and say, okay, in the next week, these are the assignments that I have. This is um, this reading is this long, and you know it's going to take me this amount of time. Um, I also have a football game I want to go to, or something like that. So let me plan out how and when I'm going to get all this stuff done. Um, and that that sometimes that's something that we sometimes do in those check-ins is I help them do that personal planning meeting. All right. 
Now, when parents come to you to talk about their kids, what worries do they express to you the most? Um, they worry about their kids going off to college and um, failing and having mm, to come home. One. That's a huge one. And then the other one I hear, and this is this is this comes up pretty frequently, is you know I'm not going to be around forever, and I need to make sure that my young adult is in a good place and has a level of independence. Those that's are the two my, biggest ones. That's what my mother tells me is a lot. She's like, you know, I'm not out. She wants to make sure she knows I'm on the spectrum. And that's why she wants to make sure I'm doing well. She wants to make sure I'm cared for after she's gone. We already lost my father. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, we're living in the building my brother owns. My brother and his family are right next door. So when she's gone, she knows my brother will look after me. So, yeah. I mean, I understand that fair. My mom's always worried about me and always worried about me. But now with my podcast and how well it's been going, it's kind of put a smile on her face knowing that eventually this will become something bigger. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's. You know, as a parent, um, I have the I have that worry. I have three children. The, my daughter is my oldest, and then then I have two sons. And you know, that's we worry about that all the time. You know, are they going to be okay? And when you have a a, a child who has um, some additional challenges, you worry even more. And part of the reason we worry so much is because when our kids are little. We, do, we have to do, you know, we, we are their advocate. We are, um, you know, we're the person who's making sure that they're getting what they need. And, 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 and that's also one of the reasons why it's so difficult when kids become young adults and they're, they want to go to college. It's as hard for parents to let go mm -hmm. as it is for kids to take on that responsibility. I mean, it's like I got a friend of mine who I've met online who's autistic and he's become like the sole bear, sole money maker because of his his um SSI because his entire family is disabled. Wow. Mother wound up getting hit with COVID twice and it like totally destroyed her. That's his a big father one. Yeah. got um, bone spurs on his back and he can't work anymore. His sister's got high anxiety. And his brother is level three autism. Wow. So he's the only one. He's like me. And he's sitting there. I got to do this. I'm like, listen, you also have to have a life of your own. You are the child. Your parents are the yeah. ones responsible for taking care of you. It's not the other way around. I understand you're bringing in the money, but your parents need to know you need a life of your own. Otherwise, you're going to burn yourself out. Absolutely. Yeah. That burnout thing. That's a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I come across that a lot too, especially among the, um, the young adults who got through college, but it was just a harrowing experience for them, mm -hmm. or they just couldn't, they couldn't make it work. So, um, and now they come to me because they're, they need, they need to earn money. They need to yeah. have jobs. They need to have a productive life, but getting through that burnout is um it's really challenging i mean then that brings me up to the next question how do you help them prep for finding work do you do you help them find companies that work with those who are on the spectrum or that are neurodivergent do you talk to the company yourself so that to me is more of sort of like an employment counselor role and that's not what i do what i do is um a couple of different things, but depending on where young adults are in that process, one thing we do is we talk about um, work, employment fit, job environment fit, and also, um, you know, the type of work. So if I've got a someone who's coming to me and saying, you know, I, I need a quiet environment, I can't do anything fast paced, um, I pro have a slower processing speed, you know, things like that, then, then the kinds of work environments that are going to be good for them are going to be different than someone who comes to me um, with a different set of needs. And so we look at 
um, I, I like to do an exercise with my clients where I have them fill in the blank. I say, you know, I work better when, you know, and then we come up with a list of what they need in a work environment, what is really debilitating for them to have in a work environment. And then from there, we start exploring jobs and careers, what those would entail in terms of any additional training, because um, some of them are not interested in going back to school or doing anything or they or, you know, if it's a self-paced mm -hmm. uh, training, they have a co-occurring ADHD diagnosis and that doesn't work well for them. <laughs> so we you know, we talk about that kind of stuff. We do. Um, I help them to understand job postings. So we'll pull up, uh, um, you know, one of the things that my clients sometimes have trouble with is uh, the difference between what's a required, um, what something that you're required to have versus something that's desired in, a, in a job yeah. posting. So where we talk about yeah. that. We talk about where a desired means it's something that they potentially want in you to where right. required means you need to have it. Exactly. Exactly. So we do that. Um, I coach them through and help hold them accountable in terms of job applications. We talk about references. Mm. Um, that's actually one of the first things I talk about when somebody says they want to find a job, even if it's a summer job, you know, which who are you going to ask to serve as your references? You need three. Yeah. That in and of itself can take a huge amount of time for, for clients to feel comfortable reaching out to people, Yes. Um, getting back in touch with people that they haven't spoken to in a while. Um, and a lot of my clients haven't done very much outside work. Um, in fact, I'm actually getting ready to co-host a, um, a webinar on how you can use volunteering as a, a jumping off point for um, paid employment. Mm -hmm. So we talk about those kinds of things. I coach them through interview prep. Um, we we talk about um, an in-person interview versus a Zoom interview. I love Zoom oh. interviews, by the way, for <laughs> autistic individuals or yes. anybody who gets nervous. Because I, I, as I pointed out to one client, you can put you know get one of those big trifold um, presentation boards, put it behind your computer and you can put all kinds of reminders to yourself you know, on there that the, the person who's interviewing you has no idea that they're there. Um, so I've we do learned, those kinds of things too. Yeah. I've learned the hard way with Zoom interviews or even phone interviews is don't have too much information up because it right. can overwhelm you. And I've had, That's true. Where I've had I've had phone interviews and I've had the website of the company and I've had this, this and that. And I was just so overwhelmed with information that I wound up asking information that they've already answered to me. Got it. Got it. Got it. I also talk to clients about how to tell from an interview, like what kinds of questions you can ask in an interview mm -hmm. to help you get the information you need to decide if this is going to be a good fit. Do you, um, do you also help with not giving too much information? Because I know yes. that's a big issue with us is sometimes we get overly friendly and we just give everything away. Yeah, no, we do talk about that. We do. I do mock interviews with with my clients. We role play a lot. I do that with that's social good. with social um, communication skills as well. Um, and then when, when my clients actually, you know, if they're on the job or in the phase of a job search where they're having further interviews with the company and stuff like that. We talk about, should, should you disclose, should you disclose mm -hmm. if you do how, when, and where? That's um, a big question. Cause my friend had asked me that is, do you disclose that you have a disability? Cause yeah. everywhere you look, everyone's saying disability check. And then he was telling me in California, a lot of times they're saying, if you have a disability, then they ask, do you have SSI, which is almost illegal if I'm right. Right. Yeah. I don't know about the legalities of that, but I know that th there's a, there's a lot of, um, um, if you're, if you've disclosed that you have a disability there, there's only certain things that they can, that they can really ask you. Um, but 
it's a tricky subject, right? So some, you know, one on one hand, if you disclose to a potential employer that you're on the spectrum and then they wind up not offering you the job, if it's because, well, they can't discriminate you because you're autistic, but they can find a million different reasons not to offer you the job. um, Then that was probably not a good environment for you to be in. Mm -hmm. Right. The other hand, on the other hand, there's the, the fear that people will, um, are, are making stereotypical coming to stereotypical conclusions when you say you're autistic. And so you shouldn't disclose, but you still have to be able to ask for accommodations. Yeah. So one of the things that we practice is that's where that I work better when statement comes in is I mm-hmm. like to talk to, to my clients about what, what I like to call. I don't know if I've read it somewhere or I made it up. I have no idea, but solution focused disclosure to, you know, instead of saying, I have a disability and it's hard for me to do this and it's hard for me to do that. And I don't do well in this situation. Instead say, you know, I know some things about myself. And one thing I know is it's much easier for me to focus and concentrate and, and do the work. If I have an environment, if I'm in an environment, that's a little quieter, this is a noisy workplace would you be okay if I brought in some noise canceling headphones? So basically how to use to you kind of in programming language, how to use an if then kind of statement. Yeah. If this, then that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or, exactly. Or in the job industry, how to turn a no into a yes situation. When they ask you about your strengths, how to say your weak strengths to turn them into a positive. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one when when we do interview prep, a lot of my clients just dread that, you know, tell me about yourself and mm-hmm. what are your strengths questions? They It's very well, hard for them to talk about themselves. That's, yeah, that's, that's one of the tough ones because you don't know where to be. You, they don't know mm-hmm. where you want you to begin. Right. A lot of them, I guess, probably go, they go back to their childhood. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, 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 no. I don't want to do that far back. <laughs> Right. So when you were talking about having too much information behind you, if you're in a Zoom interview, mm-hmm. one of the things that that's actually one of the things that we talk about is like your the bullet points of what you want to make sure you say about yourself, um, you know, and where to start that. You know, do you go back to where you went to elementary school? Mm-hmm. or Do they really just want to know about your life from, you know, 18 and older? <laughs> Now, do you help them deal with rejection of jobs? Yes. Um, I also help them with the frustration that of comes waiting. from wait the waiting and also not, never hearing, right? Mm. So that's a big thing now, right? It's so easy yeah. to apply for jobs. Um, and a lot of companies won't even let you know if mm-hmm. they're not considering you. And that's very difficult for for my clients. The other thing that can be difficult is a lot of them feel that um, they can only apply for one job at a time and see that one through mm. um, to the end before they apply for anything else. Or once they get an interview with, you know, they've applied for 10 jobs, one job asks them to interview, and then they they don't want to follow up with any of, of the other places because they feel like you know they can, they're only gonna deal with this one. Um, so I spend that that's a that can be a big hurdle to overcome. I mean that is a big, it's the it's basically the old adage of don't put all your eggs in one basket. Exactly, exactly. But that's a very hard um, mindset for some of them to really some of my clients to really grasp. Um, and part of it is because they you know they there's so much rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, that when they do get an interview, it's they're so hopeful that they 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 almost attribute too much positivity <laughs> to that situation. Yes, I mean I used to have that all the time. My mom used to say, "Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't get overexcited. They may not hire you." Right. And then right. she's like, "Because because if they don't, then you're going to be let down hard, and then it's just going to be you're going to have to build yourself back up again." Right. And the other thing that I tell that I talk to clients about is, you know, sometimes you don't learn 
certain pieces of information um, about a company until you're well into the the um, the interview process. Mm-hmm. So you may have had you know three or four interviews, and then you meet <clears throat> you finally meet the person who would be your supervisor, and it's just not going to be a good fit. I mean, you just know. Uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot is just because somebody offers you a job doesn't mean you have to take it. That's you know, and and in this economy, uh, that can be hard, difficult for for some folks. And some folks come to me and they say, "I am just looking for any job. The first job I get, and you know, and that's where I have to respect that I'm their coach and not their." Um, you know, I can only suggest I'm not, I can't say to them, don't do that. That's not good. I mean, that's, that's the balancing act when you're a coach is that it's the, it's what the client wants to work toward. It's kind of like my friend. He's like, I wanted to, I'll just take anything. I'm like, listen, you just can't do that. You, because if you're going to sit there and you're just going to accept it, they're going to kind of see the desperacity right through you. They're going to see desperate in the interview. They'll see that definitely. I'm like, you need to do your research to any for any company before you re, before you even sit down with an interview because they're going to ask you questions about their, about them, and if yes. you don't jack squat about what they do, they're going to say, "Oh, all you are is somebody who wants a paycheck." That's absolutely, not- you are absolutely right. We talk, and I talk about that as well. I have a whole blog post on things to do before, during, and after an interview. And one of them is research the company, revisit the job description, um, and, you know, make lists of characteristics that you have that, you know, match up with the job description or other work experiences, you know, make sure to highlight those things. And then the thing that um, I always make sure that people do is say thank you. Yeah. Send a thank you card or a thank Mm -hmm. you email. Yep, absolutely. That, I mean, that to show, I'm pretty sure a majority of people out there nowadays don't even send a thank you letter. Yeah. It shows your care. Absolutely. Now, what do you think the hardest part about transitioning for someone who's on the spectrum is into the adulthood? Um, I think the hardest part of transitioning is fear of failure. And I think some of that fear of failure is just because they've never had to, they've not tried certain things in that way uh, yet. And so that's why I feel like transition to adulthood is a family process. Uh, and it, it, you're, it, you're never too young. You know, if you've got a seven-year-old, there are ways that you can help that seven-year-old build their confidence um, and their in themselves and also their resilience. Um, part of what happens when we fail is we have to pick ourselves back up. So if we're not able to do that, then we just get stuck. So when you're dealing with failure, do you bring in the family and say, I want to talk with you and your family online? And go over what they can do to help you deal with like either a, a job rejection, a school rejection, or just yeah, life we, in general. We we have those conversations mainly when it comes to um, parents feeling comfortable allowing their kids to make decisions supporting those decisions, even if it's maybe not the decision that the parent would have made, and also supporting their young adults process. So sometimes um, I'll come across a family where the result that, that everybody wants is happening, but the way the young adult is getting there is not, you know, it's the, the, the parents feel like it's taking them too long or they're, they're, they're not, um, focusing on the right things. And so then we have a conversation about, you know, what your role is as a parent and how that changes as your kids grow. And um, I think a lot of parents are just, they, you know, we've heard this expression, bulldozer parent, helicopter parent, you know, they want their kids to succeed. Mm -hmm. They want to clear all of the obstacles out of their kid's way. But by doing that, 
you're really doing your kids a disservice because you are not allowing them to um, have the experience to know that they can succeed based on, you know, with, with using themselves as a guide, as opposed to relying on parents. And they also have this fear of failure because they've not failed. And so, yeah, that's where we do a lot of, a lot of work with, um, with the parents and the, the young adult. No, I'm pretty sure you have some good success stories to tell about your either getting a job or graduating school. I have, um, yeah, I'm trying to think of a good one. So I have a, one client that I'm actually still working with who um, knew he wasn't ready for college <clears throat> and went to community college and had very spotty success with community college. Um, he was getting overwhelmed. He was getting overwhelmed very easily. He was getting overwhelmed and then just sort of not doing anything. <laughs> um, and um, his mom called, contacted me and said, you know, he really wants to go away. He has his heart set next year on transferring to an out-of-state four-year college. And I am just not sure that he's ready. And so we started working together and he made the transition and I've had a, you know, a bunch of sessions with him and he's like, I'm good. My stress level's low. I'm, you know, he tells me about all the, you know, things he's doing with other people and um, he's on top of all of his coursework. And yeah. he's like, I don't, you know, my, my, the biggest compliment to me is I'm done. I don't need, I don't need your help anymore. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so those are, those are my biggest success stories. Now, finally, where can people find out more about you? They can find out more about me through my website. So my um, business name, my coaching practice is called Spectrum Transition Coaching. Mm -hmm. And if you Google Spectrum Transition Coaching, you can find my website, spectrumtransitioncoaching.com. And there you will find my blog, um, my resources page, and a whole bunch of ways to connect, to have a call with me, to see if um, coaching might be a good fit for you. All right. So that is it, everyone. That was Beth Felsen of Spectrum Transition Coaching. Thank you, Beth, for a great show. Thanks so much, Reed. I really appreciated this time and ability to talk with you like this. No problem. See you in the next one, everyone. It's the way things used to be I'm no big fan of now I must have some sweeter memories Somewhere in the cloud to be gonna miss all you had consigned to the dustbins of history like opinions from your dead Thank you.
talk to the freaks. You can talk to just about anybody you happen to meet. It ain't what it was and it is what it is. 